Hello, everyone. It's nice to see uh, a good turnout on what is like one of the final uh, Thursday nights before the holiday takes off. So I'm sure you're missing a fine Christmas due somewhere instead of you've chosen to come and be with us. So I'm very grateful. My name is Greg Whitfield, and I'm a junior research fellow at the IAS here at UCL. This whole past year and a bit, we've been conducting a long series of seminars and panels and papers and presentations on the theme of lies. And we've brought uh, scholars from uh, across uh, London and England and the world to talk from multidisciplinary perspectives about all manner of issues and lies. And we've had papers on, on bullshit and cheap talk and fake news that have been extraordinarily illuminating on this, this really rich and timely topic. And for this last panel, this final panel in our series, uh, we thought it appropriate to do a little bit of, of navel-gazing, to look a little closer to home where lies and truth and uh, issues around speech impact the work we all do, not just at places like the IAS where kind of intellectual conversations are our kind of raison d'etre, but across university campuses much more generally. Now, it's rather commonly expressed thought that speech on university campuses is under threat. <clears throat> on the right, we hear complaints about snowflake students demanding trigger warnings and safe spaces, chasing off disagreeable speakers. While on the left, worries about administrators goaded by reactionary uh, uh, funders and trustees abound. Now, I want to proceed introducing our panel and starting our discussion by briefly mentioning two uh, cases that were uh, at the top of my news feed just this week. Now, the first is our, our neighbor very closely to the south, SOAS University, uh, has, uh, is it next week they're hosting this? It's a charity comedy night they're doing to, to benefit a, a quite notable charity. Uh, and they invited a series of comedians, and one of the comedians objected to a part of the presentation contract he was asked to sign. Now, the contract asked all presenters to read and understand they're committing to the series of non-discrimination policies, so as an institution endorses, and closes by saying, uh, all topics must be presented in a way that is respectful and kind, uh, it does not mean that these topics cannot be discussed, but it must be redone in a respectful and non-abusive way. And this comedian found that uh, an intolerable infringement upon his free speech uh, in such a context and refused to participate. Of course, it generated uh, extraordinary reactions across the you know, internet, I suppose, across Twitter and, and the free speech sphere. Um, We'll get to that later. The second case, perhaps more politically relevant, but less close to home, comes from US academic Mark Lamont Hill, who, uh, giving a speech, he's an academic at Temple University in the US, while giving a speech, he used the phrase, uh, a peaceful and free Palestine from the river to the sea, uh, which is a, a fr historically fraught phrase that uh, is, is associated in, in some areas with anti-Semitism. Of course, in, in, in full, the fullness of context in his defense, he was defending a, though politically fraught, 
not unreasonable one-state solution to the problem with Israel and Palestine. Uh, he was immediately fired from his position at CNN for saying this, and there was significant pressure to have him fired as well from his professorship at Temple. Now, the trustees there responded by supporting his free speech rights. They said, the U.S. First Amendment says you're free to say such things, and we will not use any kind of authority to stop you from doing so. Now, in both these cases, right, whether or not these cases call for uh, our comment, and on the political merits they may or may not, they've certainly generated immediate and extraordinarily heated commentary from a wide array of sources. Now, it's this phenomenon of speech issues on campus generating an extraordinary amount of negative attention for our communities and for the work we do uh, that I want to draw some attention to tonight. And so this panel puts three scholars thinking about quite broad and interesting issues of academic freedom, liberty of conscience, and the culture wars campus scrums into conversation in hopes that we can shed a bit more light than heat upon these issues. Uh, so our first speaker is Will Davies. Professor Davies is a political economist uh, with particular interests in neoliberalism and the history of economics and economic sociology. He's currently co-director of the Political Economy Research Center and his fairly recent books include The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Well-Being from Verso, and The Limits of Neoliberalism, Authority, Sovereignty, and the Logic of Competition. Uh, his popular writing has appeared in uh, the Journal of uh, Cultural Economy, Renewal, and the Goldsmiths Press, as well as recent long pieces in The Guardian on this particular issue. Uh, to Will's left, we have Jeff Howard, lecturer in political theory at UCL. Jeff writes and teaches about a variety of topics in contemporary political and legal philosophy, especially concerning crime and punishment, freedom of expression, and counterterrorism. He's currently working on a new project on the moral duties of journalists and the ethics of press regulation, focusing on concerns about echo chambers, polarization, and so-called fake news. Last and very much not least, Emily McTurnan, uh, political philosopher and lecturer in the Department of Political Science here at University College London. Also program director for the department's MA in legal and political theory. Emily writes on civic virtues and civic vices, uh, as well as luck and its significance for thinking about political equality. Her recent work includes work on uh, microaggressions, equality and social practices, as well as work in bioethics on fertility treatments and uterine uh, transplants. That seems very fascinating. Uh, I hope you'll join me in welcoming our panel. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Greg, for inviting me along this evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to be speaking, uh, well, I was invited uh, on the basis of an article I wrote for The Guardian uh, in the summer. It was one of the Guardian long reads, and it was on the topic of um, free speech. And the headline, I can't remember exactly what it was, it was something like how uh, the right invented a crisis, um, which gives a sense, it's a slightly uh, over-the-top title, as these things always are, but it uh, casts a sceptical eye on the idea that there was a crisis of free speech on campuses um, in, uh, the United, in, in Britain today. 
Now, clearly, uh, things are, is this not, no, sorry. Clearly, uh, there is uh, something going on, but there is a great difficulty in achieving any kind of objective, impartial view of the nature of the problem, because there is no clear uh, basis on which to create such a view of things. Many of the attempts to try and interrogate the scale of the problem, and that includes a House of Lords Select Committee report from uh, around a year ago, um, have concluded that while clearly something is going on on campuses in Britain, just as it is in the United States, one of the problems here is that the media uh, have got a habit of grossly amplifying uh, the scale of the problem. This was something that the House of Lords Select Committee concluded. Um, and it's also the case that it, they took evidence from various um, speakers, including people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is um, in his capacity as the, I think he's one of the, um, he has some role in relation to the Oxford Union Society. Uh, and Jacob Rees-Mogg himself said that actually things like the Charities Commission, which imposes various regulations on what type of political speech is allowed in uh, student unions because they're charities, and also the Prevent Duty, which is created by the Home Office, are far more of a problem in regulating speech on campuses uh, than students themselves. This was Jacob Rees-Mogg who actually said this. So one of the things I, that I, I try to do in that piece, and I'm going to lay out some of the key claims in the piece uh, uh, now very briefly, was to try and understand if we can't necessarily get an objective grasp on what is actually going on or the scale of the problem, what are some of the preconditions of that problem arising in the way that it is today uh, in the way, uh, at this particular moment in history? To do a sort of stand back and look at some of the cultural and technological preconditions of a, of a crisis of this nature as it's represented uh, in the ways that it is. And the first thing to say, I think, is to come back to this question of the role of the media in all of this. Because... The media has clearly amplified uh, particular cases of this. One of the most shocking cases was when the uh, Daily Telegraph reported on a student that they alleged had forced the English curricula, the English uh, department at Cambridge to remove white authors from the syllabus uh, and put a, a photograph of this student on its front page, a very large photograph of the student. Um, it turned out that the student had basically organised an open letter on how to decolonize the curriculum, on some various ideas on how to uh, bring in more um, authors of color into the, the, the curriculum. Uh, and the Telegraph had grossly misrepresented what had, what had happened here. Um, and they made a correction a few days later in very small print on page two. Um, but this was a cl classic kind of case of where the media have got the bit between their teeth about this entire issue. And I think one thing that we have to recognize is that when we talk of culture wars as dating back to the uh, 1960s, uh, one thing that I think we, uh, and this is relatively easy to, to evidence in various ways, is that I think, and one people thing you'll hear in relation to all these debates is that campuses have become, and universities have become dominated by left-leaning uh, students and academics. I think that that is relatively uh, uncontroversial thing to say. Well, dominated might be a strong word, but that uh, universities uh, have become um, uh, uh, lean in various ways towards liberal left uh, opinions, um, but that at the same time, uh, right-wing ideas uh, which contest those opinions uh, have had more purchase, in, particularly in the press in Britain, but also in the United States and things like Fox News and talk radio and this sort of thing. And one of the things I think we are seeing at the moment is a challenge to the right of academics and students to be able to cast critical moral and cultural and political judgments uh, with autonomy 
uh, in ways that potentially undermines the, auto the, the role of, uh, of, of the media to cast that judgment, but also the role of markets in casting judgment over uh, worthy from unworthy cultural artifacts and so on. And I think we are witnessing uh, a sustained pressure from uh, parts of the media, uh, and I think it's perfectly clear in Britain, uh, which are trying to discredit um, uh, parts of universities, particularly in the humanities, trying to cast their judgments as uh, self-interested, partial, um, and cynical in various ways, uh, in ways that I think has to be seen as uh, within a broader conflict between uh, universities and the media that dates back to the 1960s. So that's my, my first point. The second point I want to make is that the nature of, of the rise of what I routinely call platforms. Um, and platforms, of course, is a term that has become much more prevalent uh, in uh, the last few years with the rise of social media and the rise of various other types of the platform economy and so on. But we now talk about platforms that, I mean, this is a platform right now, and you know, platforms are, um, people get no platformed and, and so on. And I think that what we've witnessed, particularly with the uh, spread of the uh, internet and the social internet over the last uh, 10, 15 years, is a vast multiplication of platforms, uh, the like of which uh, was unimaginable only 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and to carry on using a language of censorship uh, that was suitable to an age of the printing press and the analog media uh, as it emerged in the uh, early Enlightenment, uh, where the principal characteristics of those uh, media and those presses was their extreme scarcity uh, in relation to their potential readers, uh, that these were uh, one-to-many uh, media uh, uh, technologies, to use the same language of censorship um, and uh, in relation to an era where there is actually an overabundance of platforms, an overabundance of possibilities to speak publicly, is, I think, uh, a rather... Um, uh, a deceptive uh, way of talking about the nature of the politics around this. And I think that a better way of understanding what something like no platforming tries to do, regardless of what we think of it, is not to talk about it in terms of censorship, because it doesn't really have any possibility of actually denying people all platforms. I think the possibility of denying people all platforms is no longer realistic. What it tries to do is to say that people will not share this platform. So we have a platform here in a university, or we have a platform here with this website, or this particular Facebook group, or whatever it might be, um, and that there is now a politics around which platforms people are prepared to share uh, those uh, platforms with, uh, so as to push them onto other platforms. Now, that is going on all over the place. It has uh, certain positive effects, certain negative effects, but it's not the same thing as silencing people uh, in the way that would have been the case in the era of, of the printing press, um, uh, uh, which predated the internet. And my final point, very briefly, is to do with, uh, which stems from this, which was to do with what is often called the attention economy. Because what happens in this age of overabundant platforms and overabundant uh, content and overabundant events, to be quite <laughs> honest about it, is that there is a constant need to make um, content, to make speech, to make interventions in the public sphere eye-catching and attention-worthy. Uh, and one of the key ways in which uh, this occurs, as is done extremely well on the right and, and on the far right, is with acts of uh, transgression of various kinds, to say things that are outrageous, to say things that are offensive, but also to claim that another person is acting in a transgressive fashion, to claim that one is being silenced, to claim that one is being censored, to claim that one is being denied speech or denied publicity or denied a platform is a very good way of actually attaining a larger audience 
religion. So there's a kind of paradox at the heart of a lot of this sort of thing that many of the places where you read about people who are being denied platforms, who are being silenced, who are not allowed to speak, are magazines like The Spectator, uh, online websites such as Quillette, which has uh, sort of become the kind of home of this type of argument. Um, there is the intellectual dark web, as you, if you haven't heard of that, go and Google it, but these are people who claim to have been abandoned by legacy institutions, but they include people like Jonathan Haidt, uh, Steven Pinker, Douglas Murray, uh, people who, uh, whatever else they lack, they do not lack attention and platforms. Um, so I think that there is a sort of very complicated way in which the language of censorship, um, uh, uh, claims of transgression are being manipulated in various ways so as to uh, compete in an era in which uh, attention is ever harder to come by. I think the, the final thing which is just worth mentioning on that is that the nature of live events has been transformed hugely over the last 10 years by these things. Um, this turns any live event into a possible uh, uh, broadcast piece of content with an audience of, uh, of potentially of, of hundreds of millions. Um, now, that, <laughs> I doubt that's going to happen tonight, but it does mean that uh, the potential for members of on panels or in audiences or whatever it might be to act in ways that seek some kind of heroic um, sort of transgression, to seek attention uh, or to play some martyr role or to, uh, in a sense, to instrumentalize or what is often called weaponize uh, an event for the purposes of some ulterior motive have grown in ways that I think haven't been properly appreciated. Um, and I think that this is, I'm not quite sure how that relates exactly to the question of free speech. It certainly doesn't reduce free speech, but it certainly accounts for some of the ways in which campus events have entered the kind of maelstrom of, of cultural conflict where particular types of, uh, of, of, of intervention or, 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 or events that have been closed down, and events are being closed down undoubtedly, but perhaps 20 years ago no one would have even seen what went on or would have known that much about it, but now can become used as a, as a basis on which to claim some kind of, of, of silencing censorship or marginalization. So, I'm not sitting here this evening to claim that, that nothing is going on in relation to the uh, regulation of speech on campuses, but I think what I do want to just start us off with understanding and thinking a bit about are some of those cultural, political, and technological preconditions. Great. Um, thanks, Greg, for organizing this event. Um, and thanks, Joe, for those wonderful opening remarks. Um, and thank you for coming. And uh, what I'd like to do before I think we can adequately address whether free speech is under threat on campus, I, I'd like to ask first what it would mean for free speech to be under threat uh, on campus. Um, I think part of the problem is that the phrase free speech can refer to any number of different principles which obscures what might be meant by any particular invocation of the, of the phrase. So let me, let me flag two. So first, I think some people, when they use the term free speech, might mean something like a fundamental moral right to express yourself and communicate your thoughts with willing listeners. So to say that free speech is under threat on this first notion is to say that the moral right to free speech is being violated such that people are being wrongly prevented from expressing themselves and communicating their thoughts to others. But that's not the only thing people mean, I think, when they use the term free speech. I think, secondly, free speech sometimes is used not to refer to any particular moral right, but rather to refer to a particular institutional or cultural strategy for dealing with bad ideas. And on this view, even if there are certain ideas or viewpoints that people have no moral right to express, that people would act wrongly to express, 
you might think they should nevertheless be allowed to express them so that others can argue back against them constructively. So to quote the famous 1927 US Supreme Court case where Justice Brandeis defends this idea, if there be time to expose through discussion the falsehood and the fallacies to avert the evil by the processes of education, the remedy to, to be applied to expression that you find odious or reprehensible is more speech, not enforced silence. And I think this distinction is crucial because we can fully accept that some people have no moral right to express or defend certain views while nevertheless thinking twice about whether we should um, suppress their views, decide not to host events including such views, and so on. So let me, let me tease out this distinction with respect to, to one particular category of objectionable speech, namely speech that incites hatred. So my own view that I'm trying to defend in my work on this topic is that nobody has any moral right to try to persuade others to adopt the view that some people are morally inferior or that they deserve to have their basic rights violated through violence or discrimination. In fact, I think we all have moral duties, enforceable moral duties, to refrain from speech that incites hatred. So I think that when we ban hate speech, both within the university and broadly in society, I don't think that we wrong the hateful speakers themselves because we're simply enforcing duties that they have not to incite hatred. So anyone who says that their free speech has been violated because they've been prevented from expressing their view that Jews are subhuman, I think has misunderstood what it is the moral right to free speech protects, because I think that we have moral duties that set limits on what that right includes. But I think it's a further question. I think it's a further question whether the duty to refrain from hate speech should actually be enforced. And this is where that second idea of free speech enters the picture. If we can better diffuse the dangers of dangerous speech and the hatefulness of hate speech by talking, by arguing back against it, rather than by suppressing it, if we can persuade more people that these ideas are bad through counter-speech rather than through suppression, and so better protect vulnerable groups themselves, then I think this would be a preferable approach to take. Now, on this point, I don't think there's any ironclad rule here. I think it just depends on the empirics of the various cases. I think sometimes suppression of hate speech is the right call, as in internet echo chambers that whip up hatred. But in other contexts, I'm quite skeptical that a blanket suppression of hateful speech is the best approach. So with this distinction in mind, I want to think a bit more, I want to propose a way of thinking about this question of whether free speech is threat under university campuses. So if the claim is that students are somehow violating the rights, the moral rights of hateful speakers by insisting that they be disinvited or by no platforming them, by making a ruckus that makes a particular event at which a hateful speaker has been invited unmanageable, then I think the charge that free speech is under threat rings very hollow because speakers have no moral right to express hateful ideas on campus or I would argue anywhere else. Indeed, when it comes to university politics, um, outside speakers have no right to any platform at all, even if their view isn't hateful, right? Not anyone on the street has the right to a platform on a university campus. Still, the fact that speakers with odious ideas have no moral right to preach them on campus, from that idea it scarcely follows that they should be banned as a matter of policy or that they, we should have a blanket policy of not including them in campus conversations. For there is that second sense of free speech I've talked about, where we don't think of free speech as a moral right per se, but as a cultural strategy or practice through which we confront ideas that we think are reprehensible. And I'm inclined to suggest, and this might be controversial, that there is at least some important place, even on university campuses, for conversations in which one of the parties to the conversation is advocating a substantively mistaken, reprehensible, or even evil view. And I would, would want to say that the purpose of permitting such conversations would be precisely to subject that view 
to the kind of intellectual scrutiny that exposes it as seriously mistaken. And insofar as a conversation has a good chance of serving that valuable role and serves to drive people away from the evil view more effectively than if the conversation weren't held at all, then it, at least in many circumstances, should proceed. And if that were true, then no platforming such conversations would be objectionable for the very reason that they would obstruct a valuable effort to talk people out of those bad ideas or persuade impressionable listeners to reject them um, by, enabling to, by enabling us to see those objectionable ideas dismantled in real time. So to give you an example, should the organization Hisbut Tahrir be permitted on university campuses, say as part of a debate about whether to reestablish an Islamic caliphate across the Muslim world, which would include significant restrictions on the civil liberties uh, of many people, but especially women. Now, I'm just gonna assume for the sake of argument that Hizbut Tahrirs are manifestly mistaken and could qualify as hate speech according to some plausible definitions of that term. Still, a blanket ban on those views being expressed on campus by those who sincerely believe them strikes me as unwise, not simply because it generates an aura of mystique and illicit excitement, among those tempted by those views, but simply because doing so could well be counterproductive to the mission of convincing people to reject those hateful views. And in fact, I think the government's prevent duty guidance on this point has a partly illuminating element. So the, the prevent duty guidance given by the government to universities with respect to counter-radicalization policy reads that when you have speakers with extremist views on campus that could draw people into terrorism, these views must be challenged with opposing views as part of that same event rather than a separate forum. Now, I'm certainly not trying to suggest that we should be cramming our campus schedules with hateful speakers just for the opportunity of rebutting their views. Um, what I am inclined to defend is the claim that a, a wholesale refusal to deliberate with views we deem hateful or to permit events at which, or to refuse to permit events at which such deliberation proceeds would probably be misguided and would miss out on real opportunities um, to show impressionable students that the views under scrutiny are mistaken. I think these opportunities are most important in circumstances in which a substantial portion of the audience is tempted by or holds the unreasonable view in question, which only increases, I think, the moral imperative to confront it head on. For example, a student suggested to me uh, recently um, that we shouldn't even debate the matter of whether Donald Trump should be reelected re to the presidency, suggesting that Trump advocacy itself could qualify as a form of, of hate speech. And especially if you are from um, a particular vulnerable immigrant community, I see why you could perfectly understand why advocating for Trump might constitute a form of hate speech. But insofar as the event would have many American students at it who might be tempted to vote for Donald Trump, it would do them and I think therefore the democracy a massive disservice to deny them the opportunity to think through the manifold reasons why voting for him would be a deeply objectionable idea as I think it would be. Now, it might be objected that all of this presupposes the possibility of rational argument that, succeed, that can succeed in influencing people's views. And I think I am guilty, uh, perhaps, of a certain kind of liberal naivete in presupposing that. And obviously, the evidence and cognitive bias shows that people deeply committed to a belief are unlikely to be talked out of that belief through a single conversation. And antagonistic forms of persuasion have been shown by the empirical evidence to backfire. But this is plausibly consistent with the claim that it is possible over time for people to be talked out of bad ideas and is certainly consistent with the claim, which Mill defends, that the real audience served by such encounters are not the diehard partisans, but those on the fence who are endeavoring to make up their own minds. Now, one final comment about this, which is that I think freedom of speech in the second sense is a cultural strategy for working against bad ideas is, is risky. So I didn't read to you before the entirety of the prevent duty guidelines. Um, it includes another provision, which is this. 
the event with an extremist speaker should not be allowed to proceed, except where universities are entirely convinced that such risk of, of convincing people in the audience that the extremist speaker is right can be fully mitigated. Where universities are in any doubt that the risk cannot be fully mitigated, they should exercise caution and not allow the event to proceed. So unless the university is certain that everyone in the room will go away convinced that the extremist speaker is wrong, the event shouldn't proceed. Well, I think this is an implausibly demanding requirement. Um, I think we can never be certain, even if we believe that we've constructed auspicious conditions for counter-speech, it might sometimes backfire. The hateful speaker may wind up on the day being the more persuasive person on the occasion. Now, insofar as this is likely in advance, clearly such an event is not what I have in mind. And, and I'm fully on board with the, the claim that if the main function of an event is to get a hateful speaker a platform to speak without contestation as in a commencement address or an honorary lecture, this would be unacceptable and would probably violate it, the university's duty to sustain an atmosphere of equal respect among its members. But I still think it's inevitable that spe free speech is going to be risky. And the government's view that we must never permit an event that includes a fundamentally unreasonable view unless we are certain that no one will walk away persuaded can't be the right test. To say that no unreasonable views will be allowed because of the risks is simply incompatible with the fundamental faith in the possibility of rational persuasion on which the entire institution uh, depends. So I'm gonna move from no platforming to another aspect of this campus speech that seems to be attracting a lot of attention, for sure. Um, which is the supposed return of political correctness. So you've probably read some articles about this. So the thought is increasingly we're seeing people start to pay attention to and police minor details of our interactions with each other. So what kinds of jokes are okay? What kinds of terms should we use? Which questions should we ask? What counts as the right kind of flirting? All these things seem to be up for policing and thinking about and kind of being really careful about in a way that's worrying some people. And I think we can see the campaigns that are prompting that are a kind of range of campaigns depending on where you're based. So there'll be things like campaigns against microaggressions. So those are the everyday innocuous seeming slights experienced by members of disadvantaged groups or put downs and degradations as Chester Pierce who coins the term puts them. There'll be campaigns against everyday sexisms, uh, the extension of the Me Too movement beyond what some people deem obvious cases of sexual assault to things that other people have deemed just merely sort of <coughs> clumsy but largely harmless flirtation. That's a recent letter from some French feminists who've declared this is extended beyond the realm that it should have done. Two Twitter disputes over whether you use the title like professor or doctor to refer to women or uh, posts about manspreading or mansplaining. So this set of things, a whole set of ways in which everyday interactions might be policed or looked at for details and those details might be taken to matter. So this has caused a huge amount of outcry among certain commentators about how horrifying this kind of stuff is, right? How threatening it is. So people like Haidt, who's been mentioned, have said things like, this is terrible for students, so it's going to encourage a kind of victim mentality, they say. It's going to cause them to be offended and hurt by all sorts of tiny things they might not have noticed before until these campaigns got going. Um, they've also, these commenters have said things like, they're bad for everyone. So you've probably heard the term snowflake generations. Everyone heard that term, right? So it's thought as we're somehow producing out of our universities this whole generational era of students who are going to be ill-fit for the workplace because it's too sensitized to everything. 
Um, maybe they're even going to bring free speech down, right? It's going to be this chilling effect on free speech if everyone's worried about the kinds of things they're saying all the time, causing offence to others and just really being worried about those sort of things. So that's the issue I wanted to talk about. So there's a set of commentators worried about this generation snowflake type stuff. So all I'm going to do is give a kind of three thoughts about why we shouldn't have this panic over the morals of the young. Okay, I don't think this is somewhere where we should all get worried. I think that what's going on on campuses might be something we should even endorse as a good kind of thing, if this is in fact going on. So I'm not here making a claim that there is more offence around, that people are now returning to the days of political correctness. I'm not a sociologist. I'm just saying, if they were, that would be a good thing. So that's the line I'm going to try and push. So I want to try and convince you that taking offence is a pretty ordinary kind of way of, of negotiating our social interactions, and that it can have some good effects, and it could have some good effects here. So I'm not saying it is happening here, I'm saying if it were, maybe this would be a good way to go. It's a social tool we could put to use, maybe we should put it to use. Okay, so the first thing I want to say is that we shouldn't catastrophize the taking of offence. So in the media, probably for the reasons that have been amply discussed, there's this tendency to focus on kind of extreme cases or cases where things have really blown out of hand. So people have been threatened with job losses or there's been Twitter storms and so on. And I think it's worth taking one step back and thinking about the actual nature of taking offense as it normally goes about in our everyday social interactions when we're not on Twitter. So I take it that we very often take offense at stuff that other people do. So if a colleague makes a slightly off-color remark or my partner buys me a terrible present or someone cuts in front of me in a queue, I might take offense, but I might just raise an eyebrow or make a crisping noise or maybe tell them that they've done the wrong thing and shouldn't do it again. So I think it's really worth bearing in mind that taking offense can be incredibly small-scale and minor and that we use it all the time. So I think that we're all actually very attuned to the ways in which we're relating to each other and the minor details. So this is the second point I want to make. So there are so many social norms that guide every aspect of our everyday interactions and tell us whether someone's being respectful and considerate or whether they're making us feel uncomfortable or being disrespectful. So there are norms about how close I should sit to Jeff. There are norms about how long I should make eye contact or shake his hand. If I do it for too long, maybe that's going to have certain kind of social meaning. If I do it for not long enough, they might have a different social meaning, saying, you know, I should kind of distance this person and don't want to get too near them. They have these terrible views on no platforming and, and free speech that I don't stand up to, right? I should distance myself to him from him. So I guess one thought I want to just convey is that there's nothing new or different or unusual about paying attention to minor details of our everyday situations. We all do it all the time. It tells us a great deal of information about what others think of us how attentive they are to us, whether they let us cut in front of them in the queue, whether they cut in front of us, who gets to speak when, who gets to say what. This is all stuff that fundamentally shapes our social interactions, and we all pay attention to it all the time. So there wouldn't be anything new if students were suddenly attending to minor features of the situations. Everyone does that. But you might say, what about taking offense, right? Should that be going on? And what kinds of norms are up for grabs in these? debates over taking offence, over cultural taking offence, or snowflakes. Are they the wrong norms? Is it unfair to sort of revise the norms we've got? So the third thought I want to kind of present to you, along with the thought that there's nothing really that strange about taking offence, and that taking offence can be a kind of everyday activity, is were it the case that people were taking offence to shift those norms, that would seem reasonable. The norms we have to govern everyday speech, flirting, our general interactions, have been shaped in pervasively unjust societies, 
and you'd expect that the norms that we have would therefore privilege some groups over others. It'd be surprising if they didn't, right? When we think about who's had powers to form those norms, who's had powers to enforce those norms, and then the enforcement of those norms about how we treat each other with respect and consideration have been often extreme in parts of the world. So people who transgress, particularly if they've been from non-privileged groups, can be penalized in terrible ways. So it would be unsurprising if some of those norms needed to be shifted. So were it the case that students were in the business of presenting us with new norms, trying to enforce those new norms through taking offense, reminding their professors that maybe they should be more careful around pronoun use, or maybe they should possibly be a bit aware that some material could be sensitive for some students. That might be something we need to consider, given the fact that norms have been pervasively shaped in ways that are likely to be unjust, given that we live in unjust societies. So I guess all I wanted to suggest to you was that if there is a return of political correctness, if it is being enforced with taking offense, maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe it's not so weird to attend to the details of minor situations. And maybe this is even something to embrace where it to happen. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Um, we're going to open it up to the panel to discuss amongst themselves from community groups so far. But I'm uh, going to assert the privilege of the chair and just ask a first question to try to frame a conversation going forward in So my, my wonder, my thought while you went into this speaking is that social media is very clearly kind of one of the essential and most important drivers of the global political moment that we see today. It's kind of where most speech is happening forward. Now, <clears throat> there are two kind of parallel concerns I have about that, and, and one is to follow on with, with what Emily was talking about and you know, take it uh, in the opposite direction and, and maybe do a little bit of pearl clutching and say, won't somebody think of the children? And here, the dynamic I'm concerned with is a bunch of very clever, conservative, arch-conservative, alt-right uh, producers of media on social media, in particular on YouTube, which are working very hard to <coughs> reverse engineer YouTube's algorithm and promote themselves at, at great profit to younger audiences, to not the you know, generation that we're teaching yet, but 13-year-olds who spend a terrifying amount of time on YouTube. And there are fascinating studies that you know, with a very small number of clicks onto the interests of most 13-year-olds, you'll end up at a Jordan Peterson video or a Milo Yiannopoulos video or some other genuine attempt to radicalize. And against that, against that kind of background, there is a reaction to deplatform those people from YouTube in particular. And so the people doing that have been quite bold fairly recently by the revelation that Mile Wyanopolis is a bankrupt. That in succeeding in pushing that person in particular off of that platform in particular, He's now destitute, and for which they're, they're really quite happy. Now, I, I wonder if that provides a counterexample to um, Chris Will's uh, thought that you know, the, 
proliferation of media means no platforming isn't become a concern we might otherwise think it is. Here is a person whose speech in this kind of million chapter two sense has been meaningfully curtailed. To the better, I think. It, it's very hard to deny that the targeting of his speech the way it is, is acted out is, is not something that uh, we should be especially tolerating. And so that's just a, a mishmash of, of thoughts to throw out. I want to invite you to ignore it entirely and speak to the more interesting things each of you had to say or to uh, address the audience directly on, on that question. But uh, I open the floor for all discussion. Can I just, I mean, that obviously takes us a long way from campus politics, what you just said. I mean, I think, like, there is a, you know, there are lots of fascinating things that you've raised there, but they don't necessarily concern campuses. I mean, there's <laughs> the, the politics and the technology of the alt-right and, and, and the sort of broader transformation of the public sphere is a, is a, is a, uh, a you know, much larger set of issues. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, what we're talking about sits within those. One thing I would just say is I, I didn't mean to deny that... Um, there isn't a politics of platforming and no platforming, and that there isn't there aren't power games that are going on. And you've just given a very good example of of, of how out there in the kind of wild west of kind of, of YouTube, people are playing those power games, and the left can fight back against the right, and so on. And that absolutely is is going on, and is is important and needs to be understood. Um, but if you look at the way in which Newsnight very controversially um, did a piece about Tommy Robinson, Stephen Lee actually Lennon, um, they included a photograph as their backdrop with a picture of him, which is one of his own photographs, with a piece of gaffer tape over his mouth. And this was immediately controversial because this is exactly how he wants to be seen, is as having, having his speech taken away from him. His speech is not taken away from him. On Facebook and YouTube, he has plenty of opportunities. Now, you're right, and no doubt, that you could fight back against algorithms and try to sort of um, push him at further out of the sort of, you know, the further to the margins in various ways. But I think that there is, we, we have a kind of binary kind of, I suppose, I don't know whether it's a Cold War language or a sort of early modern language or exactly, you know, we could trace in various ways, but of, but of, of censorship and of silencing, which doesn't capture the politics of what is going on in all of this. Now, it so happens that universities do have a certain type of legacy authority that people do not want to lend to figures such as Tommy Robinson or, you know, and this is why the Oxford Union Society keeps getting into hot water to come back to campuses. The Oxford Union Society, clearly, I would say, playing the attention economy. I mean, I think it's cynical and pathetic, frankly, the way, you know, they repeatedly invite um, people from the far right to come and um, speak uh, against criticism. Um, and, um, you know, that what people are trying to deny is the lending of the authority of Oxford University to those people. So, of course, there, is, there, are, there are power games going on, but these are in shades of grey rather than in the kind of binary terms that someone like um, some of these figures might... I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it, it, it was heartening <laughs> to, to see Yiannopoulos end up in that situation, but it was, a, it was, a, it was a, clearly a, a, a gradual thing. I mean, he also... You know, he, his publisher withdrew a very lucrative book contract from him, um, and that was due to a massive sort of online, you know, no doubt called a hate mob in the pages of the Spectator or Quillette. But you know, these this politics of, of, of mobs is going on in all sorts of complex ways that needs to be understood. So I'm not especially troubled by deplatforming on uh, in these kinds of cases on YouTube, partly because I don't think 
um, YouTube is an auspicious uh, platform for debate and counter-argument. And so because YouTube doesn't satisfy that role in enabling, enabling critical contestation and critical counter-speech, it's something that people watch while sitting home in their pajamas, um, I'm less concerned about um, deplatforming in those contexts, especially in light of the view, which I think is largely correct, that YouTube has to at least in part think of itself as a publisher of material rather than just a platform um, enabling a kind of online wild west. Um, and insofar as YouTube makes those editorial judgments or Google makes those editorial judgments, I think that's um, inevitable. Um, I think one connection um, to, the, to the importance of, of what's going on on campus is about how we're teaching our students to become more alert to the, to the, to the realities and complexities of, of online social media. So um, I don't think schools are doing a particularly good job teaching media literacy, teaching students to understand what the algorithms are that generate what hits come to the top of a particular Google search or a particular YouTube search to teach the requisite kind of skepticism um, in distinguishing uh, trustworthy authorities from non-trustworthy authorities. Um, and Jamie Bartlett at Demos has written some, some wonderful stuff on this. Um, but I think that's, that's one important feature of this, which is that part of what a, a responsible civic education looks like today has to involve um, attention to, to creating conscientious, critical consumers of social media. 